everyone. Welcome back to Reality 2.0. I am Katherine Druckmann, and joining me as usual is Doc Searles. And today we have a returning guest, Dave Hughesby, who is a longtime privacy advocate and friend of the Reality 2.0 podcast. Thank you, Dave, for joining us today. Thank you. And we have a lot to talk about. So Dave is always up to something interesting. Um, I don't know if... I would highly recommend checking out a couple previous episodes we recorded with him. This is, a, I suppose, a, a continuation of that to an extent. Um, but we have a lot to talk about. Uh, I'll let you take it take it from there, Doc. But maybe we should get well, back into that question of of where have all the uh, the old school privacy advocates? Well, that's gone. who we were. I mean, it's a little more background. Is that uh, uh, Dave? We were just talking that. Um, you know, I, I'm of the generation that did, there, there was a collection of us that were um, hardcore privacy advocates um, way back when in the in the last millennium. And uh, uh, probably the most notable among those is John Perry Barlow, who wrote the the uh, uh, Declaration of the of Independence for Cyberspace. Uh, and but Dave was around then too, a lot younger, but um, but very involved. So. So, so Dave, I want I want to get into what you're writing about here because you came up with a new um, initialism or acronym, uh, authentic data economy, and the idea behind it is authentic data, and 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 also coming out coming coming out the back end of this with full decentralization or full di- full distribution, and so so t- so give us the it's a long piece, but it's got a lot of it's got a lot of wind up before it gets to the pitch. We could probably skip that part, but because we've got a fairly geeky audience. Um, yeah. But tell us, what, what's the difference between the authentic data economy and, I mean, every, everybody hates the one where all our data is being sold and, and handed around to everybody without any control on our part. But what's, what makes what you're talking about different than other, we're using crypto, so we're cool approaches. <laughs> well, we're using crypto, so we're cool. <laughs> <laughs> we'll start there. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think the just to tie into the previous episodes when I was on here, I was talking about full decentralization and user sovereignty as a means to getting to a world where we truly own our data and we truly are in command of the monetization of it and are able to participate in the world around us without immediately being correlated across time and space, immediately being tracked and, and um, falling victim to what I call sort of casual surveillance or corporate surveillance, right? Mm-hmm. Where as your data flows through systems, corporations, businesses are able to observe that movement of your data, your information, um, aggregate it, develop some kind of behavioral model, psychological model, whatever, and then able to sell that to people who wish to manipulate you, sell you things, that kind of stuff. And, and, um, you know, a year ago was the last time we really talked and I had set out on a mission to just solve full decentralization, moving away from centralized servers, moving away from even like the DNS system, um, and, you know, we even got so deep into our research that we were moving away from IP addresses even. Um, mm. it's, it's quite interesting research that we've done. But uh, in the meantime, you know, I had spent the last four years at Hyperledger. It's uh, the security maven there. And I was deeply involved in the self-sovereign identity um, community, which is Internet Identity Workshop, you know, IIW, which is coming mm-hmm. up here in April. thought I'd give a plug to that. It's a great conference. Yeah. Um, I co-organize. And was yeah, that's born, right. it was born in a podcast, actually, the last day of 2004. It goes oh, back wow. that far. Wow. It'll be yeah. our, thir- our 33rd this spring. Yeah, that's right. April. Yeah. Right. I've been going there for, gosh, almost 10 years now. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I'm looking forward to it because we're going to start showing actual running demos um, of what we're talking about here today. So um, in that push for decentralization and owning our data, um, and combining it with the self-sovereign identity theory and application, we we started looking at what the real problems were. Like self-sovereign identity is supposed to be about I get a credential 
like a KYC credential or like I have been immunized for COVID credential. And by credential, I mean some piece of data that um, has been digitally signed by a, an organization that has handed it to me. And it either can um, establish my identity or be given to me like I'm identified as the recipient of it. Um, and the idea is then is that you should be able to take that data and use it in systems like go to my grocery store and make a proof, digital proof that I have had a COVID vaccine or something and then access the grocery store. The problem with that is, is that the self-sovereign identity community has struggled with privacy significantly. They like mm -hmm. to say that it is private and it, it, it can be. That's what I want to say. It's like the architecture itself so, can be. So to pause there for a, a second. Person. So the my understanding of SSI, and I've read and heard and talked a great deal about it, but I am not on the inside of any of the, any of the development efforts. But in its simplest form, it's just individuals presenting verifiable credentials that are issued to them by somebody else. So, and the idea is that um, it isn't that my driver's license is my ID. It's that if all you need to know is that I'm licensed to drive, here's a verifiable credential of that. Or if you just want to know I'm over 18 or I'm old enough to get a COVID shot, which is like in my case, I'm in California, I'm above the threshold for COVID shot. You need a verifiable credential. You get a verifiable credential. It isn't that I present my driver's license with all the other privacy exposures on it. But what you're saying is that's not enough. We need It isn't. Yeah. Okay. So tell me, tell us about that. Well, um, one of the classic examples in SSI is uh, when you go to say a bar, the bouncer asks to see your driver's license, you're handing over verified data, right? This is data that the DMV has verified to be true about mm -hmm. you. Yeah. And it's presented in a form that's independently verifiable. They put it under the black light to make sure mm -hmm. that it's not been tampered with. But all that data on there now is available to the bouncer. And, and what they normally do now is just scan the barcode in the back, which captures right. yeah, that's all of your typical. data. Yeah. Right. It, it yeah. captures all that data in a database. They don't need it. All they need to do is know that you're old enough to get in there. And, and so this is, this is where I, the, the crux of the problem and the crux of SSI is um, to gain our privacy back or to engineer, to for us to be in control of our own data and to, to be masters of our own privacy. Mm -hmm. We have to be able to interface with the outside world without revealing the underlying data. So giving your driver's license or a digital version of it to a bouncer is not that because you're well, giving the data away. So, so let me pause there for a second because I think, I think the SSI case is that you're not giving them your whole driver's license. You're just giving them the part of it they need to know. The, I mean, so I was thinking yesterday, so in order to verify to Carbon Health, which is the company putting on the, the, the COVID shots, because I had my second COVID shot yesterday, um, there were a couple of authentications they did. They gave me a card that I had the last visit, and they see the second visit is not filled out yet. And and they scanned the, QR, the, BR, the, the, the barcode in the back of my driver's license. Now, okay. I couldn't help thinking then, what else is in that barcode? I mean, it could be for their sake and probably for their sake, because they're actually, more companies actually are looking to do data, data minimization, which they're calling it on their end. They really don't want to know your whole life. They're not selling your data to anybody else. It's not their business. They just want, want to do a verifiable credential. But the idea with SSI's, I understand it. Is I have I have a digital wallet with basically pulled apart digital identity, not identifiers, but verifiable credentials. So here's the one that says I am known to Carbon Health, and I've been here once before. And they would scan that barcode and know only that, or maybe they wouldn't even scan a barcode. I would, in some form, I don't even know, probably a QR code that I've generated myself. Mm -hmm. They would scan that QR code and say, oh, yes. And that would check with somebody else, I guess, maybe the DMV. and say, yep, yep, that's authentic. That's him, right? That would, The idea is that, the idea anyway, an idea with SSI is that you're not, you're not disclosing lots of secondary data that is of no, of no which is none of, in other words, it, it, it ideally minimizes what we might call none of your business, right? And that was, <laughs> right. that's N-O-Y-B, none of your business. 
But what, mm-hmm. so I'm clear on what you're saying is that even that isn't good enough. We need, we need more. Yeah. I set you up, Doc. So <laughs> you walked right into it. Um, yeah, that's good. That's my job. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So the reason why to get back to the title of my piece, which is the authentic data economy. Yeah. Um, and to tie it into what you just said. Okay. Um, you were talking about data minimization and you're talking about systems that are using the actual underlying data. So you said, you know, you had proven yourself to them the first time they gave you a card, then maybe a QR code. They would just say, this is my identifier for me right. inside of the carbon health system. Right. Right. Yeah. And actually the, <laughs> the first time I did have a QR code, as I recall anyway, in, in an, in an app or in an email on my phone, I could show them that. Mm-hmm. But this time I, ju- I just showed him my driver's license because I didn't have the other thing. Okay. This, this is real life. Even... Real life is you don't have the damn thing they gave you, right? <laughs> right. A lot of that. They just, yeah, they just scan your driver's license. Well, yeah. so let me, let, me, let me turn that knob on privacy a little bit higher and show you how you can actually do this in a way that you would be able to own your own data and there wouldn't be any transmission of the underlying mm-hmm. authentic data, um, but you still maintain the trust, okay? So SSI is about getting some data that is independently verifiable. Yeah. So it's a piece of data that was given to you by the DMV or by your university. It's digitally signed by your university or the Mm -hmm. DMV. And therefore I can hand it to you, doc, and you can look at it and go get the signing keys for those institutions and verify that it is valid, okay? So- Mm -hmm. Um, the, the lead up in this paper is that we should start calling this authentic data because mm-hmm. there's been a lot of problems around self-sovereign, the, the term of self-sovereign. There's been a lot of problems around these other, like the, the terms we've been using. And so I'm just proposing that we just start calling it authentic data. Okay. Because yeah. that's what it is. It, it's data that comes with some degree of authenticity. All authentic data indicates where it came from, who it was given to, and that it hasn't been modified. And, mm-hmm. and that can be your driver's license, right? That's mm-hmm. authentic data because it's tamper resistant and it came from the DMV and it's bought you, right? Or your diploma, for instance, from your university is all fancy and everything. So it's difficult to, to counterfeit those. But in the digital world, authentic data is data that is digitally signed by the issuing institution or the issuer. Mm-hmm. It's, it's uh, given to the holder and that's provable. And then there is a digital tamper um, proofing, uh, d- you know, the digital signatures themselves show that the data hasn't been modified. Okay. So once you get that data, um, you can do all kinds of things with it, right? It, it becomes a digital equivalent of the paper version, right? However, that doesn't preserve your privacy. Um, to preserve your privacy, what you want to be able to do is receive authentic data about yourself. So I possess it. So I receive my credit history and my credit score from say like Experian. Okay. Mm -hmm. They digitally sign it. It's, you know, it's encrypted to me. It's tamper proof. Okay. Now, if I want to go and apply for a loan, I don't want to have to authorize that broker to go get it because it's none of their business, as you said, right? What do they need to know to to properly price the risk of the loan to me? They just need to know my credit score they, uh, you know, the range, you know, it's greater than 800 or something. They need to know that I haven't had any bankruptcies in the last 10 years, you know, whatever it is, those are things that I could prove to them based off of the authentic data, my credit history that I now possess. And that's called zero knowledge proofs. Okay. And this is, again, we're using crypto, so we're cool. It's Mm -hmm. a, it's a cryptographic technique that um, when combined with non-repeatable digital signatures. So when I make the presentation of the proof, I digitally sign it. They digitally sign that they've received it, sent me back a receipt. Now we both have a copy that this proof has happened. They now have all the necessary paperwork or paperwork, digital data to make their operational decision, have insurance over that. And they also have a cryptographic record that that transaction happened, okay? Without me revealing the underlying data. Okay. Mm-hmm. And this is, this is interesting because part of the theory here, and this is something the SSI community hasn't really discussed until now, but there's kind of two classes of problems and I don't have good names for them. I just call them class one, class two problems. 
Mm-hmm. Um, class one problems are problems where regulation requires disclosure. So think like uh, financial transactions, mm-hmm. right? There's a certain degree of disclosure of who's sending the money to whom, um, and that's required by law, right? And in the participants in any financial transaction have to pass certain background checks, you know, like anti-money laundering checks, that kind of stuff. So those are all class one problems. And I got to say, SSI has that locked up. Like we could do that so easily because it's just authentic data and it's based on the real stuff, right? I can have an AML check done on me, get that check as an authentic data. I can hand it to my bank. My bank's good to go, right? Um, The other class of problems, the class two problems are basically everything else where regulation requires privacy, Mm -hmm. okay? And there's, we sort of, one of the great things about our society is that we actually default to privacy per regulation, right? If you're a business and you ask somebody for their personal information, there are consumer protection laws that do bind you as a business owner. Um, they're not very strong, obviously, but there are some protections. Mm-hmm. If we move in a direction where we're using zero knowledge proofs for everything, not only do we free business owners from having to worry about those things because the data they get does not actually possess PII and it's not encrypted PII, it's zero knowledge proofs based off of PII, you know, the, the personal information. Um, so not only do we free them, but we're also never transmitting our authentic data, our underlying data. We're just presenting cryptographic proofs based on that data that is necessary to interact with the real world in a trustful way. And just you know, back of the napkin math, I think roughly 80% of the interactions in the real world, problems in the real world are class two privacy preserving transactions where regulation requires some degree of privacy to be maintained. Um, And the other 20% is class one. So the problem here, and and I'm getting to my point, Mm -hmm. SSI up until now has not had a real good solution for class two problems. They cannot do zero knowledge proofs efficiently. Um, When data is issued to me, underlying data is issued to me, my privacy is rested in my membership in a cohort. So I'm, you know, like you're a, you're a carbon health um, patient. Okay. Mm-hmm. Your privacy is actually based on a membership in a cohort. You don't mm-hmm. like, if you could prove to them that you're one of their patients, but not reveal which one, that's how your privacy then comes from the fact that they have millions of patients. Okay. If they mm-hmm. only had two patients, you don't really have privacy because you can prove to them, yeah, I'm one of your patients. And they're like, okay, well, you're not Joyce. So you must be mm-hmm. doc, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> or you're not Catherine. You must be doc, right? So you don't really have privacy in a zero knowledge proof system unless you have large cohorts. And the SSI community cannot, up until just recently, could not do the math, the crypto, um, efficiently enough to have large cohorts. Uh, they All the existing solutions in in the community right now, in the economy right now, um, the best they can do is like one in 10,000 is your privacy. And in a lot of cases, that's probably good enough. But even then, the data that is generated, we're talking about is on order of megabytes, actually gigabytes per 10,000 pieces of authentic data. I know I'm getting like really bland here on numbers, (laughs) but the the point here is that um, my co-founder, Mike Lauder, invented some new cryptographic techniques um, late last year that radically change our what we're capable of. Um, he is able to reduce the size of these kinds of proofs by eight magnitudes and increase the speed of computation by six. So now proofs, so when I wanna go to, like when you went down to, to get your um, COVID vaccine, the proof to carbon health that you are one of their customers would only be 380 bytes Mm -hmm. instead of the many megabytes that are the existing solutions in the SSI community. And the reason this is important is because these new kinds of proofs are so small, they can be printed directly into a QR code. They can be done in paper and and inclusion now becomes the main driver for this new method because now we don't rely on, like, if we want to give 
self-sovereign identity and the privacy preserving capabilities of this new um, model, this authentic data economy, we don't require the end users to have super smartphones. We can now do proofs that are so small that we can print them on pieces of paper and we can put them in smart cards. And so this is, you know, I've, I've read a lot lately that there's a big concern about inclusion and, and equal access to this technology, um, you know, all throughout the world where smartphone access, technology access is limited. And um, I, I'm just super excited about this new technology, this new technique. And, and like I said, in IIW, we're going to be showing everybody how so, to do so, it. So is there, okay, so, so, so we know who you're talking about or what you're talking about. Um, uh, you're, you're now working for a company here. Um, what's the name of the company? The company is TrustFrame. Um, Trust it was co-founded okay. by myself, uh, Mike Lauder, um, Cam Gear, and Rick Cranston. And okay. so some old, some old people. names. Yeah. Yeah. I know Cam. Um, what, what, um, and is it TrustFrame dot something? Dot com dot org dot, Yeah. We don't really have a website there yet. It's just our logo at this point. I see it. Um, <laughs> there it is. <laughs> okay. So, but we are launching, you know, we are going to put all this stuff online here in the next couple of weeks. So, okay. So, um, is there a name for this compressed or a form of crypto that are, or zero, zero knowledge proof that you're doing? Yeah. So, so it's all about, um, we call it accumulator-based privacy because the, the underlying um, cryptographic construct is called a cryptographic accumulator. Mm-hmm. And um, I could go into the math of it, but the, the, the trick here is that or the, what's really cool about this is you can, like if you're an issuer, let's say you're Carbon Health, you could issue a verifiable, you know, authentic data. So like, here's your here's your patient ID, here's your patient ID, here's your patient ID. You could issue those out to all of your patients. And if you had a billion patients, you would take each one of their IDs and you put them in this cryptographic accumulator. And because it uses, um, which is essentially modular math, it never gets any bigger. It's fixed size, whether there's one credential or there's a billion credentials. Okay. So, so, so you have a way that, uh, you can scale zero knowledge proof that wasn't possible earlier. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. To global okay. scale, by the way, like we've been running tests where we're issuing credentials at like 10 million per second. And this could easily scale to a world of, you know, 10 to the 15th power of active credentials, like billions of issuers so that's- issuing billions of credentials. So, so, you're, so you're kind of eliminating friction on the credential issuing side. That's right. Yeah. Okay. So but there's, it's way more than that. Right. So there's other yeah. stuff. My half of this, Mike's the crypto guy. My half of this is the architecture. So we're moving away from the traditional three party model in SSI, where you have the issuer, the holder and the verifier Yeah. to a new system where there's four parties. You still have the issuer and the holder and you still have the verifier, but we have this other party called the aggregator and uh-huh. it's their job to solve the many to many problem where you're, if there's going to be millions and millions of issuers and potentially millions and millions of verifiers, how are all of those verifiers going to know about all of the issuers and get, cause the issuers have to publish some data that mm-hmm. the verifiers have to receive for them to be able to accept zero knowledge proofs from holders. Okay. And so you really need this aggregator and that aggregator is also key in the sense that they will take the rules from our human scale trust system. So like what does a valid age check for, to buy alcohol look like in, you know, in Las Vegas, in Nevada, right? There's a rule Mm -hmm. about, there's a law about that. Um, Or what does it look like to do a valid COVID immunity check to get into a concert in, you know, New Orleans in Louisiana, right? That, you can formulate that as a set of rules. Aggregators would be responsible for getting those rules to all of the verifiers. Plus, they also have a role of vetting the issuers. And this is a this is a fundamental mind shift, like thinking shift in thinking in the SSI community. Because um, I think, due to the limitations in the cryptography in the past, uh, organizations like the Trust Over IP Foundation have always thought about this as like issuers will be permissioned. The word we talk, we use is permissioned. So 
you would have a closed network and the organizations that can issue data have to sign contracts, have to submit to a governance model, you know, like universities issuing digital uh, diplomas would join a coalition of universities doing this. They would sign a contract. They would be bound by all the, the legal and policy issue, policy uh, agreements for this kind of system. Um, and I think that was, like I said, largely due to the limitations in cryptography. They couldn't do privacy preserving at scale, privacy preserving credential presentation at scale. Okay. Now what we are able to do with this huge improvement is we're able to move to a much more global and like aligned with how society really works system where all the issuers are unpermissioned. Anybody can be an issuer, right? At this point, anybody can be an issuer because it can, you can do it on your cell phone. You can do it on your laptop. You can, you know, like my local farmer's market might want, might want to do a digital loyalty app, you know, loyalty program, you know, they can set up their own as an issuer. And then there is an aggregator and all of the merchants in the farmer's market are verifiers, right? And okay. I, so, I'm so, just so, saying so, like the scale yeah. is so much bigger. The, the scale, the scale of the, co the, the, the cryptography is so much smaller that we can now scale the entire system to global proportions. And that means we're going to be facing a problem of potentially millions or even billions of issuers trying to publish data that billions of verifiers will need access to so that the billions of humans who are holders or, you know, IOT devices or cars or whatever that are holders of data can then interact with verifiers. So it's a whole new scale. So Catherine, is this all making sense to you? <laughs> yeah. No, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's interesting. That, that was actually you, you, in, in this explanation, you answered, one of my questions, which was how, how does this address limitations and what we have now? And I, you know, you already covered that. So I'm kind of like, well, it's, it's going well, I've got nothing. No, um, <laughs> I like the idea that you're, that you are now able to use examples of real world use that are very, as you say, inclusive and accessible to most people. And I think that like literally most itself. people on the yeah, planet. Literally, yes, yeah, literally, yes, yeah, literally most people. And I think that's sort of the game changer here. Um, you know, not everyone can carry, can figure out how to manage a crypto wallet or, you know, whatever, you know, whatever, you know, other references we can think of. But, um, you know, a sticker right. with a QR code is, is a little bit different. So, right. Well, know. and this is going to move us in a direction, I hope anyway, uh, where we are actually the primary conduits of our own data. So the authentic data economy is, maintains at least, and is probably more efficient than the existing e-commerce um, economy that we have, the surveillance economy that we have, <laughs> except it turns the whole thing on its head. Instead of using large scale databases to transmit all of our information through the system to allow us to interact with it, instead I am become the conduit of my data, I possess my data. And then because I'm not necessarily disclosing my data, I'm doing zero knowledge proofs wherever possible. Now, there are some cases where you have to disclose some data. There's usually biometrics involved, like a photograph or something that would have to be revealed. But um, that's, all, that's in limited use cases, but I become the conduit, right? So like, again, back to my, my example where I apply for a loan, if you do that today, your broker says, okay, I need you to authorize me to go and get your credit history. Why? Like, why do they do that? Well, it's because they, the only way for them to trust the data is to get it from the source because we do not have an authentic data system today. So you, you have to sign an authorization. They then go to Equifax or whatever and get your credit history. Um, and then they are able to judge your credit worthiness for this loan. Well, now, because authentic data is possible, I can get it. I can then make proofs to that broker. That broker then doesn't care how they received the data because it's independently verifiable. It's authentic. They, it comes with its own guarantees of authenticity. It, it comes with links back to the issuer. They don't actually have to see the underlying data, but they can trust it because the trust is baked into the authentic data and I am the conduit in which it transmits to that loan broker. 
And this applies to basically everything. You know, if I have a ticket to get into a concert or if I, you know, all it like all of this, <laughs> it becomes, I become the bearer of my data. Right. And I've been really excited. I've been trying to get a hold of Tim Berners-Lee. I was like, you know, you know, maybe doc, you can talk about this or you, Catherine, I know you guys have, have followed what they're doing with solid and, and people having pods. Like it's a great idea if the pod then becomes where you store your authentic data. And the only way to get the data out is through this privacy preserving presentation system. And I think the reason why they haven't seen a lot of uh, adoption is because there's limitations in the cryptography, but those limitations have been solved. And we've had, we had cryptographers look at it and universally the, the uh, reaction has been like, oh my word, right? This is huge. So I may have kind of missed something in here, but going back to your example about, let's say a credit report or something, what do you do sure. in the use case where you're dealing with an entity who actually does want all the inter underlying data? They want to suck up as much data as, as they can. Now, I, I realize the whole point of this is to empower ourselves to resist that, but um, but how do, you t how do you take it back and enforce, no, you know, I don't want you to have all of this un underlying data. How do you make that shift when the people who are currently consuming the data seem to have a little bit more power, or maybe a lot more power than, than the rest of us? Well, you know, there, this isn't going to be, you know, the magic band-aid, right? It's not going to suddenly Damn it. it. <laughs> I hoped it would be, though. Well, like all things, time is actually on our side on this one. Um, when I was at Mozilla, I did a lot of research on web surveillance and how companies track you across the web based on your browser and your installed fonts and your clock skew and your operating system and all these things. And one of the things we did to advance this research was to assign sort of what's the reasonable expectation that that data will be stable over time. So some things never change. Like the web VR standard reveals your interpupillary distance, which is stable through the, the course of your natural lifetime, right? So that's an extremely risky piece of data to give away um, because it doesn't ever change. But if it's something like, I don't know, uh, what time zone I'm in, I travel a lot. I change time zones all the time. The time zone I'm in today is not necessarily the one I'm going to have tomorrow. So the lifespan of that data is on the order of hours, days, maybe weeks. Um, and that's true about all of our personal data. We tend, we tend to change constantly throughout our lives. Humans do. We change homes. We change affiliations with employment and social clubs. We change credit cards. We change banks. We change the car we drive. We change a lot of things about ourselves, pretty much everything about ourselves changes. And so what I hope to do with the authentic data economy um, stuff is to draw a line in the sand or more, more appropriately, a line in the timeline in history where this is where my data stops flowing through the systems. And instead it flows through me. And the farther along we get in time, the older the data prior to that line gets and the less relevant it gets to being about me. And so over time, my privacy will actually get greater as that old data they already have on me becomes more and more stale. And so, yeah, we can, you know, it has to start sometime, right? And what I'm excited about is that the research and decentralization and this huge breakthrough in cryptography is going to allow us to move the SSI community to become the authentic data community. And we'll be able to now talk about privacy preserving systems all the time. This gets back to my principles of user sovereignty where privacy is on by default, absolute privacy by default. That's the first principle of user sovereignty. And in the authentic data economy, we can actually, that, that, that's it, right? It starts off being private by default, absolutely private by default. And then we get to choose our association in transactions or, or with businesses um, based on how comfortable we are with how much data we, we will uh, share. 
And, you know, you're right. There are going to be some companies that just say, well, you have to give us all your data to participate. There's always going to be a power imbalance. However, I think we'll quickly find, um, and, you know, it's kind of unfair to talk about Joyce when she's not here, but, um, you know, she once told me that if you can get it so that the customer owns their data and controls identifying themselves to a retailer or, you know, business, it kind of inverts the loyalty. You know, they no longer want to offer 20% to the, to a first time customer. They want to offer 20% off to a long time customer because you can prove right. that you are a long time customer. You know, they can reward your loyalty because it's, it's now authentic data and they can, you can prove it. So, okay. So how, I have a whole bunch of questions, but um, yeah. and I'll put some of them in the chat and you can just look at them there and see if the, but they're the, uh, so people know Joyce is my wife and maybe not all the whole audience knows that. And she's very involved in the SSI world and has been from pretty much from the start. Um, one is, okay, how does this look to people? I mean, a, a problem I've had with SSI from the start is not with SSI itself, because I think theoretically it's fabulous. It's, it's that it's kind of what, you know, what in the very old days of computing, they called a knife edge rollover or a forklift upgrade, which is you have to take <laughs> the entire old system out and put a new system in, which just generally doesn't happen. Right. Yeah. And so this is cool. So, so, so practically speaking, okay, it's four or five years from now, presumably we all still have phones. We still have our own compute nodes that, that may be logical or physical, but we're, it's a place that, you know, we, what do we have now that we did not have in 2021 that makes our lives easier? You know, I, I, I have a something. Is it a wallet? Is it a, what is it? What, what is the thing that I have? Maybe it's just an app. Maybe it's, maybe it's something embedded in every app. I don't know. I, I want to know how it, how it works for people, right? In, in a practical sense. Well, you know, phone security is crap. Right. I mean, yes, like iOS, Apple has really great hardware assisted security, but privacy, right? Yeah, I mean, like, I, 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 how much privacy so, do you have when, you're, when your location is being leaked out? I mean, so here's an interesting That's thing. what I'm saying. That's what I'm yeah. getting at, right? So I, mean, I don't see it as my phone. Like I want to minimize the data my phone has, honestly. Yeah. So, so, so for example, I'm... Yesterday, I was in a small, I was in a, a, a suburb of Los Angeles and I'm driving and, and it's early in the morning and there is my, my Google map says there's a traffic jam on this side street that I'm about to turn on. There was one parked truck on that side street and it's somebody who's a grounds worker. Okay. <laughs> what that told me is that person has their phone on in a, in a car that, that this isn't the, moving. That isn't moving, and that tells <laughs> Google there's a traffic jam there because the car's not moving. Now, I would like when I make the deal, I would like to be able to broadcast, for example. Yeah, you know what? There are four providers out there um, of of cellular connections. I'll, as a customer, I'm saying I want to not so much opt out. I don't want to opt out of anything. I willing to give my location data to you on the basis of these conditions, which is, I know that's anonymized. It's not being shared with the cops. It's, you know, whatever else it might be. There's some collection of things by which we feel, we might feel um, okay. I mean, I have no problem sharing my traffic data in order to, con to contribute to the traffic system, whatever right, that but is. Why do you have to log in? with an identifier to provide well, that well, data. Probably I don't, I just happen, happen to have a, be, I just have to be a customer of T-Mobile, right? Yeah. I mean, I've got an iPhone and the iPhone may be as private as could be. So if I lose it and somebody gets it, they can't crack into it. But I'm still telling the, that, you know, that's my, that's my relationship with Apple. It's not my relationship with T-Mobile, right? T-Mobile right. has private deals with Google and everybody else's in the traffic business where they're probably getting money for that data, right? I'm guessing, I don't even know. Nobody knows what that business is, or if it even is a business. It may just be they give it away. I don't know. But I think part of being, part of operating with full agency as a human being in the digital world is you have more control over that, uh, over what others know about you and, and, and anonymizing that, right? You know, yep. that, 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 
this that my exposure is in is inherently limited, right? And and um, you know, you could the truth is, I mean, you could turn off all the location data on your phone that you want, but you still got but T-Mobile still knows where you're going, right? Yeah. And of course, they have to because they're moving you from cell to cell. There's nothing wrong with that, right? They're they're, they're for the for purposes of network optimization, they have to be able to do that. That is how the cellular system works. Yeah. But having, you know, I mean, part of part of why we have privacy problems in the digital world is that, and I'll quote Joyce again, you know, it has no distance and it has no no gravity. It, we're not dealing with the real world here, but there's still location, right? In the physical yeah. world, they are doing this other stuff, but it's almost like a a, a magic hat trick that you don't you don't know what they're really doing over there. It is a shell game. I don't know what you're doing with my the pee under your under your shells. I'm just trusting that you're not screwing me. Which for the right. most part they don't. Uh, they don't. I mean, there are very few. You know, in the law business, they talk about harms. Uh, is there a harm? No. Okay, there's not a problem. But there's still a sense of having your pants down. Right. Well, and that's what. Uh, let's see, you said something really great there about, you know, our autonomy in a digital world. That's what this whole authentic data economy um, philosophy and design and technical capability is all about. Okay. Um, because it, it does make me the conduit of the data. Um, and all the presentations, whenever possible, are zero knowledge proofs. So it's not the underlying data itself. It's some proof about it. You said in chat, is this a better way to do SSI or the only way to do SSI. And then later you at, you asked, is this like a forklift upgrade? And um, I would say that this is a better way to do SSI. And uh, I have to say the four party model, I have had lots of conversations with um, companies in the industry that are using SSI. And whenever I bring out the four party model, um, it's typically met with, yeah, we've always thought there was something missing. You know, or we've already decided that there had to be this other entity and it's been called RegTech. It's been called many different things. Um, but yeah. So who is the fourth party working for? Who are they working for? Who's the... Well, the, in many ways, you can think about this as developing payment rails, right? Credit card systems. So you can think of like the aggregator is the Verifone in this system, right? They're the ones that will operate the verification hardware, they will provide an SLA to verifiers. So the way I see this working, the other, and this gets to one of your other questions, which is how do you make money? Well, if I'm a business, say like I own a baseball park, I would love to own a baseball park, by the way. Um, it would be awesome. Uh, and I have to take tickets and I have to be able to check COVID immunity and whatever, you know, whatever I, my municipality, my state, um, requires me to check to have an, a baseball park. Um, I don't want to have to worry about every potential healthcare provider issuing COVID credentials. I don't want to have to, you know, worry about every possible, you know, issuer of any kind of credential I would have to check. What I want to do as the owner and operator is to subscribe to a verification service. And that is an aggregator. So I'm paying a monthly fee okay. or, you know, a subscription fee to get the checking hardware or the software that runs on our existing hardware. And then the SLA, the, the service level agreement is that I will get any updates to check rules. I will get a steady stream of, um, you know, signing keys and non-revocation proofs and stuff like that from all of the issuers, all of the healthcare providers, all of the, you know, KYC vendors, whatever, all of those issuers, their, their data that I need to have to be able to verify zero knowledge proof presentations will flow through the aggregator to me. And I'm just going to pay for that. Right. And the same thing with issuers, they have to. So one of the things I think the SSI community did wrong from the beginning is they said, you can't charge for issuance. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think that's just fundamentally wrong. Um, and because when an organization has to verify some data about somebody and then issue a verifiable credential or, you know, an authentic data mm -hmm. that they stand behind, there's some risk in that. And you have to monetize that risk or that business model doesn't work. Whether you monetize it directly by charging for issuance or you monetize it some other way, you still need to monetize that risk. And I think the SSI community up until this point has never had an answer for that. 
And I think in the authentic data economy, it makes total sense that you would charge um, for issuance. So in the case of like COVID credentials, I, I assume it'll be a billing code on your health insurance when they issue it, you know, data mm-hmm. records, creation and maintenance or something, right? Um, and that will cover their cost of publishing their signing uh, keys in their key event logs, publishing the um, non-revocation proofs, which are set proofs that my credential is part of the valid set of COVID credentials they have issued, right? Um, they have to stand behind that. And if they ever find out that that's not true for me, then they have to revoke it, right? They have to remove my credential, my specific credential from the set of valid credentials. And that's a really great segue into your other question of, is this a, is this a um, forklift upgrade? Mm-hmm. One of the fun things that we've been doing is wrapping credentials from existing SSI vendors in a revocation proof. The biggest problem here is the revocable credentials um, are very difficult to do without this cryptographic accumulator technique. So being able to have privacy. So I'm issuing a million credentials. So you like, you know, in the carbon health example, I'm one of your, I'm one of your patients. I'm one of 10 million patients. So you don't need to know which one, just know that I am one and I have real privacy then. But then if you, if I move health providers, they need to remove that credential. They need to revoke that credential so that I can no longer associate as a, or prove that I'm a carbon health patient Mm -hmm. because I'm no longer a carbon health patient. So revocation is actually really hard until uh, Mike made his breakthrough. And so we've been taking a lot of existing systems in the market and wrapping them. Like we're working Mm -hmm. to, we have a solution that we take like existing credentials that were issued, we wrap it in a revocable piece. And so we're providing an off-ramp for companies who have already invested heavily in SSI and are either running into scalability problems or they're use case now needs revocation or something, um, we're able to offer this, this as a transition. Um, and eventually, the idea is that eventually the, the old issuance system will move towards an authentic data economy issuance system. And it'll just have revocation built in, it'll have privacy built in stuff. But so it's not a forklift upgrade. It's not a knife edge rollover. It's not like mm-hmm. we have to throw away everything and do something new, we, there are intermediate steps that companies that have already invested in SSI can take. And, um, and anybody who's new to this, um, the requirements for rolling out this technology now has shrunken significantly. Um, I, I could easily see like a little farmer's market, you know, uh, the operator of the farmer's market has an app that's an issuer and then everybody can download the farmer's market app. And, you know, all the merchants have one and it just, it's really small and easy to do because the computation is so much more efficient. We can operate in deeply embedded environments with, you know, kilobytes of RAM and, you know, 8-bit CPUs and things like that. Um, Or they could even just print paper ones, right? Again, these proofs are so small that you can, you could print paper membership cards um, to all your members, uh, it's just a huge, huge improvement in the cryptography and the data, um, you know, the, what it takes to, to build these systems. Um, I had one other point that I, I kind of ran over with my own soliloquy, <laughs> but I don't remember. It was, oh yeah, I remember. You said, how, what does this look like for, for end users? Yeah. Is it a wallet? Is it an app? I would argue that you won't know that you have a wallet. It's built into every app. So if I have an app that is for my gym, for instance, and it tracks my workouts, my personal data will be stored in the app on my phone. Mm -hmm. They will issue it to me as my gym. You know, like if I go up to a treadmill or whatever and I run a mile, then I get, you ran a mile, you know, Mm -hmm. as authentic data that goes into my phone. And this becomes authentic health data that I could leverage anywhere else, right? Uh, Better Mm -hmm. insurance rates or getting my annual physical or things like that. You know, I could Mm -hmm. show my exercise regime and and what I've been doing. Um, I I don't think you're going to see that it is an explicit wallet anymore. 
I think it will just be built into everything. There might still be a wallet, but for things like digital ID cards will be in your wallet, like your digital passport or something. But everything else, okay. I think, will just be built in. So to, to change in the character of the data itself. Right. It actually falls in line with Tim Berners-Lee's idea that we'll all have a pod that will store our data and then we'll use that to interact with the world. Uh, we now have the cryptographic solution in the architecture. So he may, he may have a, I mean, I have a pod. I was an early pod, pod user. I've never used yeah. it. It's just you're a pod person. <laughs> yeah, I'm a pod person, uh, but I, <laughs> I haven't used it. I mean, it's not, it, there's, there's not a, I've, maybe there is a use for it and I haven't looked at it in a while. I mean, I, I want to support solid. I want to support what they're trying to do, right? but without, you know, and, and there, by the way, I, I also have an SSI wallet from one of the people that issues a wallet. And right. I don't use that either, right? Because it's not, but if there's, if what you're saying is, okay, so I, I have my, my gym app, you know, I mean, I mean, I mean, Apple's full of health apps. I've got an Apple yeah. watch here because I've got, I want to watch what my heart's doing. And there are several apps that provide this. And Apple does a pretty good job of saying, that's your data, it's not our data. We don't know what your heart's doing. Um, right. That, that's up to you. And they use their secure enclave on their phone to keep that data so that if someone stole your phone, they can't get it. Exactly. Like, I do yeah. commend Apple. They have really good hardware-based security uh, for storing your data securely. But I wish they would open it up to everybody, right? Well, that's, still, that, that's the Apple only thing. thing. Right, yeah, they, 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 yeah. they, 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 they want to be exclusive. But... But it's the kind of thing that, I mean, it's sort of an interesting thought. I mean, if, if Google or Samsung or somebody else that's in the Android side of things wanted to do the SSI thing in a way that's more universal, they could build, I mean, they, they could adopt your approach, I imagine, yep. where, where the data by its nature in the first place is authentic in the way that you describe. Yes. Right? Which yes. is more which is more lightweight and easier to put to use because the, the cryptographic burdens on proving it are lower. Yes, and we'll have the infrastructure to support independent verification of any data as authentic, right? That's the So is, is that your business having this independent infrastructure? Is that, uh, or what, what is your business? Our business is, is we are just licensing the ability to, we're an open core business. So we have an open source side and then we have enterprise upgrades that you can license from us, essentially. Okay. But we're fast moving into a business model that I like to call decentralized core, mm -hmm. a new business model. Um, we have a number of ideas for apps and startups that um, are informal, like it, collectively there's a service provided but the members that provide that service um, are informal relationships and uh, they um, all get paid based on what they contribute to the group. So think like mm -hmm. Bitcoin mining pools are, are a decentralized core business. So anyway. Okay. Um, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so what we're doing is, is really just standard open core stuff. Um, you know, showing everybody how to do this, revealing open source, you know, showing the open source code and everything and, and then we have enterprise and you know consulting services, support services, that kind of stuff. So, so, so we've we've been at the, This has been a very fast hour. No, <laughs> and, I didn't even realize. And, and, I'm, and I'm thinking that maybe uh, this is like the last time we talked to you, which is there's too much. We should do a different one. Yeah, we should. No, no, we should no a another follow, follow up. up. Yeah. Oh, I, I thought we were just getting started, and suddenly it's been an hour. I know we we, we haven't getting started, <laughs> and we could go longer. Um. Uh, so, so, okay, so people can read your, um, your paper. Uh, we can put that in the, that this is the authentic data economy. Um, okay. I think that there's a, um, uh, but, I, but I think there's a, I think that there's a, I hate to say go to market because what you're really talking about is, is, a, is a bit of a sea change in the market more than a way of going to the market. There's a, uh, I mean, there's a, a problem I've had with SSI in the first place, which is that, you know, identity itself, which we've got, I guess we've been talking about it since 2004, um, uh, and never resolved it. I mean, it's, it's, it, it's not so much it's a, it's a problem, it's just that it, it's, it's a characteristic that cuts across a great many concerns, right? So, and then there are yeah. all these defaults in the physical world where your identity, you know, we assume our identity is, is, is a, is a, 
a printed credential in a rectangle that's presented that, that's given to us by an authority, you know, the school, you know, whatever, you know, that, uh, and, and it's not something that's truly ours, but we're not aware it's a problem. I think that's, that's sort of the thing, but there, it seems to me there are a lot of areas where there's an efficiency in here that may be scalable that we're not thinking about. Like for example, um, uh, consents, right? We're consenting all the time online. It's a horrible non-system, you know, where every single site we go to is asking us to consent to being followed everywhere. Where if you have a global preference, there are ways of doing this right now, but they're a hack on the cookie system. There might be a better way of doing that. Where, where maybe the most important data that we carry are our simple privacy preferences that we need others to respect, you know, right. that are tied up with the circumstantial basis of a lot of our interactions. Like I am a citizen of California. You know, I am licensed to drive. I, I do go to this school. You know, I did buy this ticket, you know, but, but the I has more meaning because it's authentic in the sense that I'm in the, in sole possession of it and I'm operating yeah. with full agency. But within a, within a systematic framework that everybody is beginning to understand, right? You know. Right. I mean, your consent should be authentic data. It's self-issued authentic data. Mm-hmm. Right. It's this is mine and I can prove that it's mine. And I'm the only one who's capable of making this data. I had an idea. Identity. Here's well, here's an idea. It's an idea I hate, but I have to share it even though I hate it, which is that the awful system we have now is you go to example.com and example.com presents you with a cookie notice that says in a big green button, accept our use of cookies. And another one, like um, you can control your, what cookies are going on here. And then you get to another popover page that has a whole bunch of switches on it that are defaulted to on for advertising and other tracking based cookies. Not in all cases, but in a lot of cases they're defaulted to on. And then when you make your choices, they, okay, they call them your choices, but they're not your choices. They record it. You don't have any yeah. evidence. You you leave there yeah. like, what happened? I have no idea, right? But yeah. if you're getting, if what you get with that is a verifiable credential that says, I have, you know, I have, I have made these choices. I have recorded these choices. And, yes. and then there's the implicit contract in that that says, if I go back and find out you guys are busy selling my data, even though you said you wouldn't, I have some proof here and we can go into uh, yeah. ODR, which is online dispute resolution, which is a whole other field, but it's a legitimate one because we're going to need ODR, right? Because yeah, there will be sure. disputes. So, so in a way, what you can do is scale up the doability side of ODR in the most contentious part of the world right now, which is that Everybody hates not signing these. I've, I've, I've talked to at least three or four people in the last day who said, oh, I always click accept on those things because I know I'm screwed. Wow, <laughs> that, that, that really accomplished what the GDPR wanted, didn't it? it yeah. Um, yeah. So, so. so yeah, one of the things that we've, we're changing. So yeah, classic SSI is about what you are, not who you are, right? That was where it starts. And there's no reason why you couldn't publish self-issued authentic data about your basic privacy um, preferences. I would love it if there were some kind of standard um, like light, like user license kind of thing so that, that businesses online can start uh, accepting, you know, here are my privacy pre preferences and they're fairly standard, right? I would love that. Um, one of the other innovations we have is we, have created this thing called a micro ledger, which in and of itself becomes um, authentic data about every transaction. So because we're doing transactions with zero knowledge proofs or very limited authentic data, we can turn the record of the transaction, every message between the counterparties into authentic data by signing every message between the parties. Now, if, Every message between the parties is signed using a digital signature that follows the wet signature equivalent laws in whatever legal jurisdiction you're at. Now you have essentially a, a contract, right? It's a digital enforceable contract of this is exactly what happened. I went to this website. 
this website sent me this message that was digitally signed by them. I verified it. I then responded with a message that I had digitally signed and then they responded. Right. So we go back and forth. And if that, that conversation is, what are your privacy preferences? Here are my privacy preferences. Okay. We accept your privacy preferences. And I say, okay, I want to participate. They both the business and myself have, um, digitally signed records of that interaction between us Mm -hmm. and they would be wet signature equivalent. I mean, there, there are laws in all 50 States in the United States that dictate what um, has to be in place for a digital signature to be equivalent to a wet signature, you know, a handwritten on a piece of paper signature. Right. The notarized Um, kind. Yeah. Right. And uh, we could push this technology in that direction. Uh, and people will accept it, I'm certain, because the underlying data is not fake. It's authentic. So you can do business contracts and stuff based on the information because the information is independently verifiable. And you're trusting the data as, as much as you trust the issuing organization. So if it's a presentation of zero-knowledge proofs based off of data that came to me from Equifax that presentation links it to authentic data given to me from Equifax. So the question is, do you trust Equifax? Not do you trust me? Mm-hmm. You can verify that I didn't modify it, you know, that it came from Equifax this way and that they digitally signed it. You know, they're, they're standing behind the data. Um, and so it, it changes the way we think about data in all kinds of transactions because what we've successfully done is taken human scale trust, societal trust and computerized it, which is digitized it. Mm-hmm. And um, the, the problem here is that this could turn into the mother of all digital rights management systems, right? Um, and it probably will to a certain degree, but if we do this unpermissioned issuer aggregator, the four party model, um, I, I, I think we have enough decentralization that, um, that this system becoming sort of the tool of the oligarchy, right. Of of 1984, right. um, Is limited because I could see there being publicly run aggregators, for instance, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe this is the future of Mozilla, you know Um, I could see an open source verifier app. Like there needs to be a Firefox of verifiers. You know, there needs to be a Firefox of libraries that go into apps that hold data, hold authentic data. So anyway, I'm, I'm kind of rambling at this point, but. No, that this is good. I, I think we should put it out to the SSI world and, and not just our listenership uh, itself, but actually reach out to the SSI world. Cause I think you've got one of the best. Um, it's not a critique. It's more like a yes. And to the, to the SSI world. It's like, yeah, great yes. idea. Great structure. A lot of good movement, a lot of good things happening there. You need this one more thing. Right. Well, and you need you needed to solve these certain problems, right? Yeah. The crypto had to be solved. We had to figure out how to get the blockchain out of the middle, mm-hmm. which is also part of this architecture. So, yeah. it, you know, I don't want to pick on any one, but like Hyperledger Indy-based SSI systems are very slow because Indy is, you have to talk to it every time you issue credential. Yeah. And, this is a, our new architecture does not do that. It pushes the blockchain to the edges because we recognize that all the blockchain needs to do is be a proof of existence for your digital identity. So you mm-hmm. really, all you have to do is anchor your did string. I'm, I'm getting technical here, but yeah, that points to your key event log. I, I, this did, doesn't exist did yet. Being in the a world. digital identifier. Uh, yeah. 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 So this doesn't exist in the world yet, but yeah. the closest thing that does exist is Microsoft's ion platform which is a side tree based off of Bitcoin blockchain. So uh, it supports high speed credential issuance that did document. And a side tree is like a Merkle tree, right? Is that what that is? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So very technical people, they may know what that is. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. so Microsoft's ION system is not a credential issuance platform. It uh, is for storing your digital identity documents, which has like your public key in it and any Mm -hmm. endpoints or anything. that successfully pushes the blockchain out of the middle because mm-hmm. it only uses it for anchoring for mm-hmm. uh, 
proof of existence and providing an immutable record that this data does exist and that it is in this current state and it's independently verifiable. So we had to do that. And then, you know, so blockchain out of the middle, fix the crypto, make it efficient, you know, and inclusive, mm -hmm. which is the, the most important part. Like we mm -hmm. were trying to figure out how to do paper credentials and that led us down this, this road um, and revocation and that led us down this road. And then also the four party model, mm -hmm. because we have to move away from permissioned issuers to unpermissioned issuers if we want to scale to global scale, because there's going to be billions of issuers issuing billions of credentials. So how do you, how do we do that? We designed from scratch how to do that. Um, heavily inspired by the SSI um, community, which I think is amazing. They had to go before us for us to get here. Like I am truly standing on the shoulders of giants, you know, mm -hmm. giants like Timothy Ruff and giants like Daniel Hardman, you know, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. J uh, yeah. Jason Law, you know, like there's some serious yeah. giants in this space that I am just this tiny little guy standing on their shoulder <laughs> saying, yes. And if you do this, then we can do the whole globe. Yeah, but you're the guy on the show, so it's <laughs> it makes you huge. Okay, that's great. I just need to I just need to give credit where credits due. Yeah, I know you're doing a good job, and your name's good people. Uh, I'd have them on the show at some point too. Yeah, that'd be great actually to have everybody in in to pick it apart. Actually, yeah. after IIW, after we showed everybody how to. Do well, it. we're we're gonna have a lot going on at IIW. That's for sure. It's a lot of anticipation. It's coming up in April. For people who don't know, that's the Internet Identity Workshop. We look up iiworkshop.org and you'll see what it is. Okay. So, Catherine, Great. take us out. Okay. Well, <laughs> please reach out with uh, questions, comments, um, any input that strikes you. You can reach us at info at reality2cast.com. You can reach us on our website, reality2cast.com, which, which has the number two in it. Um, we're in, on various social media platforms. We're pretty easy to reach. So, so please do that. And we look forward to talking to Dave next time where we will be armed with many, many questions from the audience. <laughs> look forward to it. Okay, great. So, thank you so much for being here. Um, and that's it until next time.